Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 392, The Neighbourhood War. In a famous article in 1957, England turned to Germany, Ian Roy challenged the traditional idea that this war without an enemy was far less violent than those foreign wars. But the more work that has been done emphasises just how many lives this conflict touched. And in part, this is because 50% of the soldiers were stuck into garrisons locally and they didn't just sit around playing Scrabble, there was a constant struggle to control and dominate local territory. That's what we're going to talk about in this episode, and we're going to end up with a stab at the final counting of death. Most soldiers were recruited locally and expected to fight locally to defend their country. Charles did recruit some mercenaries, maybe 5,000 men-ish, and his reputation suffered hugely at the result of news sheets. What do you do with a man prepared to use foreign-paid soldiers to make war on his own people? I understand this is something which has a resonance with the American Revolution, when Britain employs foreign mercenaries against her own people. Local men fought for the ideological reasons we've discussed before, but Hobbesy did have a point that some fought for pay, and increasingly so as the war goes on, it becomes quite common that when a garrison or regiment surrenders, they get offered the chance to change sides, and many say, well, yeah, why the devil not? Those bills won't pay themselves. The rates of pay were on the face of it generous, if you ever actually got paid, which will be an increasingly big if, as the tax bill grows and people groan beneath it. But also for some, the soldier's life was just attractive, away from the stultifying restrictions of parish life and social ties, or as one pamphlet put it, I will send my chest and eat my plough and get a sword if I know how, and each man means to be right and I will swear and drink and roar and gallant like I will keep a whore. Of course, as Alice says, a soldier's life is terrible hard. 
but sometimes it might look easier than life at home. I feel like sharing a Terry Pratchett quote here because, as Martin of this parish has said, Terry is underrepresented in these pages. So here is a conversation between the wizard Rincewind and the surprisingly eloquent Cohen the Barbarian, who he finds out used to be a teacher before he decided to pick up the Barbarian's sword. After being a teacher all your life? It did mean a change of perspective, yes. But, well, surely, the privation, the terrible hazards, the daily risk of death. Oh, you've been a teacher, have you? Boom, and indeed, Tish. Thank you for that, Martin and Terry. As the war progresses, an increasing number of soldiers were also not volunteers at all, but were forced into it, especially on the parliamentarian side, where forced conscription and impressment were rife. In August 1643, foreign diplomats reported virtual kidnappings on the streets of London with barbarous violence. And these men then regularly deserted. So the carriages, barges and carts of impressed men on their way to training behaved like a colander. They leaked. Often just one third of the recruits that set out reached camp. The rest scarpered. Such is one of the sources of Ian Gentle's delicious expression that Civil War armies were like mushrooms. They suddenly appeared overnight after a recruiting campaign and then disappeared just as quickly by the morning. There were plenty of other reasons for this, though. One was that the best source of recruitment, the local militia or the trained bands, saw their job as defending the community of their own patch or county, not wandering all around the, all over the country to bash heads elsewhere. And they constantly whined to go home. Joseph Jane's Cornish troops actually mutinied when he tried to take them over the border to Devon, possibly something to do with the order of scone, jam and cream. I don't know. Jane was livid about this. And in the Commons, he declared, nothing is more repugnant to the opinion and sense of this house and dangerous to the kingdom than the unwillingness of their forces to march out of their several counties. So soldiers just went home at the drop of a hat. They thought they'd done their duty. After a major battle or siege, they often gave themselves a pat on the back and walked. Silly not to. Done my bit. What more do you want of me? I have a job to do back home. Army fortresses were common, often plonked on a town whether they were willing or not, because this was the nature of the civil wars. The aim was to have, to hold, to tax. To do that meant sweeping clean opponents from the territory acquired by the passage of a major land army or within communities that remained deeply split. So, sieges were very common. As remarked one military writer, We make war more like foxes than lions, and you will have twenty sieges for one battle. Towns therefore realised they needed walls, and all over the country there is building, and the scale of this rather unwanted great rebuilding varied a lot. It's licorice out there. At one end, there are substantial regional fortresses with national importance, London, York, Bristol, Carlisle, Chester, Hull, Newark in the Midlands becomes a vital hub in the Royalist wheel, connecting Royalist forces in the north with their centre at Oxford. And Parliament tries and fails to take it three times. From these mitre fortresses to town walls of various sizes, down to the re-fortification or a bit of ditch digging in fortified country homes, some of which would become substantial local strong points with some level of national strategic importance at a moment in time, or very symbolic importance to the news sheets. So all of this foxy warfare from chicken coop to chicken coop, someone has added all of this up. Seriously, 
This is what your dedicated historian does, and I have some stats for you from Charles Carlton's redoubtable book, Going to the Wars, the Bible on this sort of stuff. So, if you're ready and able to put the ironing aside for just one moment, find yourself a pencil and paper. Here we go. Ready? Of 645 military actions during the Civil Wars, 645, okay, military actions. Of those, 198 were sieges. That's quite 200. I'm sure a couple will be recategorized to satisfy the marketing department. So 31% of all military actions were sieges. You heard it here. In those actions, 21,000 people lost their lives directly. Now, sieges were a bad idea for your quick strategic strike for a marching army, since, as we saw at Gloucester, they could be terribly cussed. A battle. That's nice, quick, decisive, unless you lose, of course. But quick. The average siege in the Civil War took 54 days, and that is a serious hold-up to a quick strategic strike. Sieges also have got to be the ultimate nightmare. I mean, I know war is hell and battles must be hellish plus one, but in a battle it's all about the soldiers. They know what they're getting into. For sieges, you have the local population to consider as well. From the defending governor's point of view, the locals are a pain, warbling on about their property and that they really want to surrender rather than die. I mean, do they know they're in a war? From the attacker's point of view, they are not there to be pitted, but they're to be used. As sources of treachery, so the very best way of taking a fortress, of course, was by treachery, but more brutally, as a weapon, eating the supplies of the fighting men inside, sapping the will to resist. A request by the besieging governor for letting civilians leave for the sake of mercy was usually an occasion for mocking laughter rather than a proper answer. There was a form for managing these things once a besieging force rocked up its, its next destination, and for the defender, a furiously tricky decision to fight or not, and for how long. The form was that a besieger went and demanded a submission. Obviously, you wanted to get on with it, so the offer could be generous. March out with all your colours, heads held high. Though, of course, for the governor, if they said yes too quickly, their own head would not be held high for very long because they would be chopped off by the boss. Showing insufficient zeal was trouble. Nathaniel Fiennes was branded a bloody coward and sentenced to hang after giving up Bristol too easily. Charles was livid with Richard Fielding for surrendering Reading way too quickly, and he did a sort of cat-and-mouse thing with him, marched him out in front of a firing squad twice, reprieving him at the last minute. So too early was bad, but too late? Well, that could be way worse, because unless you had a good chance of being relieved, you were risking a whole lot. You were risking a sack, and the destruction of life and property, almost inevitably of innocence as well as fighting men. At Duncannon in 1645, the parliamentarian governor was warned, if the rebels take the fort, undoubtedly they will put you all to the sword. The governor took the advice and surrendered. More than one offer was often made, but if the besieger was forced to storm, and therefore see their own men die, then all bets were off. Because there was nothing bloodier and more brutal in all military action than a storm. At Lyme, Assault troops were pushed back three times, losing 400 men in the process. And the final assault, which broke through, took eight hours. By the time they won through, their fury was simply uncontainable. If there was to be mercy, 
it was only from the goodness of the heart or exhaustion. Apparently this was a general trope in the Second World War too. Carlton relates that British soldiers had a catchphrase, too late chum, in shooting enemies trying to surrender after fighting on for too long. Just one quote from an assault in 1644. Our soldiers were forced to wrench open the windows with iron balls, forcing in faggots of fire and set the whole house in a flaming fire so that it was not possible to quench it. And then they cried for quarter, but having beat diverse men before it, and considering how many garrisons of the same nature we had to deal with, I gave the command, there should be none given. So if he chose to fight, he was a mammoth decision. And long sieges were also miserable, even if they were successful. So snipers sapped morale, food was critical, often defenders were in a miserable condition. And even if you had food at the start, the stress of how long it would last sapped morale. Sieges, though, often became cause celeb with the news sheets, especially with a string of exploits by royalist women defending manor houses against the rebels. In Ireland, there was Lady Elizabeth Dowdle, who faced down the Irish rebels in 1641. She raised a company of soldiers in Munster and defended her house at Kilfinney Castle, County Limerick, and was not shy about it. The manor house was surrounded by rebels. Not content to try and stick it out, she counterattacked. I skirmished with the enemy twice or thrice a week. When a rebel commander turned up with 3,000 men and demanded surrender, I sent him a shot in the head that made him bid the world good night and routed the whole army we shot so hot. There were similar stories at Latham House in Lancashire with Charlotte de la Tremouille, the Countess of Derby, in 1644 and in 1645. We've already heard about Brilliana Army for Parliament, of course, and there are others. The point is, though, sieges went on for a while and so made a very good focus for propaganda and news sheets tended to present them according to their idiom. For royalist papers, the defence of a mansion by an aristocratic owner was an absolute fave and they rushed to them like flies to the open jar of blueberry jam at tea time. They sang a song of traditional values, of chivalry, of the gallant, high-born champion defying and overwhelming evil base opponents. When the defenders were women, like Lady Banks at Corfe, they could barely contain themselves. They ramped that chivalric stuff up to eleven. It was a theme of monarchy, upheld by its natural supporters, with all the other ranks of society under its command, protecting the existing, the natural order of things. On the other side, for parliamentary news sheets, it was all about a town defended by its brave citizens. Stories of digging, repairing, shooting, running up with supplies, tending to the poor soldiers, blah, blah, blah. The image of a corporate integrated society working together, a microcosm of the commonwealth of the realm. I mean, it's frequently fiction, but hey, this was about building morale. Who wants the truth? It sucks army commanders in sometimes because they realise that the fall of a celebrated town would be a PR disaster, and so diverted to relieve sieges that didn't make a lot of strategic sense. The new model twice had to make the relief of Taunton a priority for this very reason. So, when making that all-important decision of fight or flight, the stats were finely balanced. Again, some numbers to follow. In a sample of 25 major sieges, the defenders won 12, so about half, seven times because a relieving army arrived, so you were heavily dependent on that. The 13 where the attacker won, 
11 were by negotiated surrender. Only two fell by storm. So storm was exceptional and you had a particularly strong response. If you did fight and the fight was long, the worry was that you could hit that tipping point where it all just became too much. The will to resist broke and turned into a panic fear. At the siege of Nottingham, Lucy Hutchinson saw it all happen. The brave turn cowards. Fear unnerves the most mighty and makes the generous base and great men do the things they blush to think on. It was the same, incidentally, on the battlefield. We talked last time about the fact that a well-formed infantry company was pretty safe, but sometimes when a vast number of cavalry was coming straight at you, the heart took some convincing, and sometimes the head just gave up and said, well, go on, leg it, mate. You don't have to run faster than the horses, just run faster than your mates. The charge was as desperate as, as ever I was in. The enemy, seeing our resolution, never fired at us, but ran away, and we, after them, doing execution. On the battlefield, in a crowded and tightly packed formation, flight did not, could not, start from the front. It always came from the back in the last ranks, where men could see what was happening to their mates at the front and had room to run. Once started, panic had a rippling effect, and discipline disintegrated. The frightened soldier, as well as the hungry belly, has no ears. Then it was the killing time, and after all that stress and terror, the elation of release, it was very often a hideous sight, with all restraint stripped away, a sort of madness. The winners chased until their swords were blunted with the slaughter. The normal rules of surrender and quarter could be forgotten. There is a famous incident after Naseby, when a fleeing troop of the king's horse rode into Marston Trussell churchyard, missing the road. They'd ridden into a cul-de-sac. They were cornered by roundheads and slaughtered to a man. Their bodies tipped into a clay pit. It's called Slaughterfield to this day. The additional factor in a siege, of course, was the sack. I think the basis of the rules are still informed back to the Old Testament, which was not a forgiving time, to be fair, and to Deuteronomy 20. It's quite bloodthirsty, unless you are a fruit tree, as it happens, so you might be lucky if someone mistakes you for a damson. Personally, wouldn't have banked on it. Victorious soldiers, who had gone through hell to win, believed they were entitled to plunder. Three days plundering is the shortest rule of war. The thing is that the rules were elastic, and also you are not in a controllable situation. A lot of brutalised armed men who have gone through every form of psychological torture you can imagine, have just been released. And they could do anything, and frequently did. The historiography has been, famously, that only the slaughter under Cromwell of 2,000 at Drogheda and 1,500 at Wexford reached near the levels of the Continental Wars. That is true, sadly. But although the war in England was less brutal than in Ireland, atrocity was not as rare as the tradition held it. But to leaven the bread of what follows, it needs to be said that when a surrender was agreed, the commanders were carefully explicit about the terms and they were usually observed. There are legions of examples of defenders marching out, though plunder is pretty ubiquitous, as to be said. Honour was a very major consideration, and a word once given was seen as sacrosanct, so if a man gave parole not to fight and broke it, even the mildest commander would be outraged, as was Thomas Fairfax, when he executed Charles Lucas in Colchester for that very crime. 
and people recognize occasions as exceeding some rules, even if they're not very clear. They identify some events as atrocities. It's not anything goes. There's a danger of forgetting because, of course, we focus on the worst stuff. That's podcasting for you. But the point to hold on to is Carlton's conclusion that fighting was remarkably free from atrocities in England, maybe, he suggests, because of the absence of ethnic differences. The violence in Ireland is higher, probably because it does have that ethnic element. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Commanders did indeed try to control violence and plunder with blood curdling rules of engagement and summary execution for cases of murder and rape. I remind you of Ralph Hopton's management ethos pray well, command well, hang well. Still, there is atrocity and crime, and I won't go on, but just give a couple of examples to show why things went wrong in some cases. In May 1644, Prince Rupert attacked a disorganised, fleeing parliamentary army in Bolton, retreating from Latham House as it happens, and in the resulting chaos, about 1,500 were killed. Estimates of the number of civilians in that figure vary from a low of 78 to a high of 700. It is the only English equivalent of Drogheda. Part of the reason was, well, Rupert's attitudes, but also it was the disorganised nature of the very sudden assault. It had given no time to come to an agreement. Now, I am told by Clive of this parish that the massacre of Bolton would lead to an early view in English law for the need for the crime of command responsibility. Very distant, obviously. It happened to be James Stanley, Earl of Derby, who was in command at the time. He would be captured years later after the Battle of Worcester in 1651, convicted of treason and deliberately taken to the place of his crimes in Bolton, there to be executed. I believe there's a nice little plaque now. Just one more. When Sirencester fell to royalists by storm in 1643, there is a horribly weird phenomenon that the very helplessness of the defeated could be an encouragement towards brutality rather than mercy. So when the town was stormed, the defenders were at their wits' end and stood like men amazed. Fear bereft them of understanding and memory. As a result, the attackers, without quarter, killed all they overtook. Rape is one of those areas where the incident seems much rarer than might be expected, even in the Irish revolt where people accused each other of the most horrendous stuff. The charge of rape was rarely levelled. It could be that this is the sort of thing that went unreported, I suppose, but given attitudes towards women at the time, you would have thought it the kind of accusation that sides would level at each other for propaganda purposes at the drop of a hat, because it was viewed as a particularly horrific crime. But they rarely do so, and the number of cases are quite small. Plunder, though. Plunder was commonplace, and commanders struggled largely in vain to contain it. Just one example. When Basing House was taken in 1645, there was carnage and plunder, including the theft of the very clothes from the back of the 72-year-old Master of Art and Architecture, Inigo Jones. Poor chap was forced to leave the place wrapped in a sheet. It is a rather axiomatic rule of the civil wars that royalist armies were the worst offenders in this sort of thing, and that the armies of Fairfax, Manchester and Cromwell were severely punished, not just for 
plundering, mutiny and so on, but also swearing, drunkenness and what they described as whoring. When one roundhead boasted of the conduct of his army, the royalist Philip Warwick responded, Faith, thou sayest true, for in our army we have the sins of men, drinking and wenching. But in yours you have those of the devil's spiritual pride and rebellion. So he wasn't backing down then, to be honest. The point for both sides was that this was not enemy land and that they needed to win hearts and minds, or that was what was in the mind of the commanders anyway. The new model army was particularly determined they should protect the communities through which they passed, and their 1645 Western campaign became a sort of exemplar. They won friends by promptly paying for quartering troops, which was as rare as hen's teeth. When they took Malmesbury, the soldiers were refused right of plunder because the commander told his men that he could not judge any part of England to be an enemy's country, nor an English town capable of devastation by English soldiers. Though, to be fair, there was a sticky moment when they were marching past Stonehenge, and the army chaplain, Hugh Peters, was desperate to destroy it as a monument of heathenness. And given today's entry price, he has a point. Leave it alone, Hugh, was, however, the general response. And so Stonehenge survived to this day. If you had a garrison near to you, it was probably a misfortune, and plunder became much more likely, or legalised plunder in the form of taxation. After all, they were designed to gather the financial manure to enrich the crop of war. Garrison commanders knew they were in this for the long term, and they did try to be responsible, and win, as Charles wrote, hearts to his majesty and affections to his service. But garrisons were a bit inclined to disintegrate into a rather unruly mess, such as the garrison at Litchfield. There is a great rabble of all sorts of people convened there, neither disciplined nor armed. The garrison at Henley was designed to control traffic on the Thames. It seemed quite separate to the town, really, which went on its own sweet way, though, might I mention at this point, that when one woman objected to all the taxes, the record states that she had her tongue nailed to a post. Now, I'm not sure you should really think about this too much, but the logistics of this do my head in. I mean, how do you hammer a tongue onto a post without, you know, going through the head? Or was the tongue no longer attached to the poor woman? I don't know. Practical suggestions for completing the DIY Revolutions Manual crowd control section on a postcard. Often a sort of social and, dare I say, village life developed around the garrison, though it could all be disrupted at the start of the campaigning season when garrisons were drained of troops to create new marching armies, because when the generals opened the gates and looked for the shiny, battled, hardened 10,000-strong army they'd installed in winter quarters in November, they generally found three old guys, a dog, and yesterday's pigeon pie. Everyone else had gone home. Still, a village developed around the soldiers, and it rather mirrored another aspect of marching armies as well, camp followers. Neither were just a sausage party. There were, there were without doubt, a lot of sausages. But hordes of camp followers followed armies around in the baggage train, an entire community on the march, and the same in the garrisons. Often attitudes towards these folks are a little bit sniffy, if that's the right word, especially on the part of the godly modern army. One of them looked at Prince Rupert's army, and he sneered. They carried along with them many strumpets, which they termed legal ladies. 
These they made use of in places where they lay in a very uncivil and unbecoming way. As ever, the truth was rather more wholesome. I mean, there's no doubt prostitutes were part of the mix. But the majority were wives or those in long-term relationships or even servants or trading women. Semstresses, laundresses, traders in drink meats and those little things to make a tired soldier feel special. Little bon shows, luxuries, you know, things you couldn't get from the normal army procurement office. They did all the domestic chores, ready for hub after a hard day's soldiering, collecting food, foraging, collecting wood, mending clothes, the works, and of course, patching up said soldiers after a firefight. But inevitably, all of these people brought hardship to the locals. Large groups of tightly squished people brought camp fever and brought plague, and so people died. Villagers often objected to all the depredations and taxes and took club law into their hands, but generally this fell into the bad idea, capital B, capital I, category. At Woburn, for example, the local clubmen proudly drove off some royalist raiders. Hooray! Power to the people! Unfortunately, they also killed the contingent's major. Oops. Before you could say vengeance saith the Lord, a regiment arrived from Oxford, set fire to 18 houses, did £3,500 worth of damage. It's not fair. Surely a major can't be worth all that much. Garrisons created frontier lands, where opponents came into contact by chance or design, and quiet villages became scenes of violence. In Richard Goff's lovely book about the history and community of the Shropshire village in Middle, he tells a story that he remembers from when he was a schoolboy. Settle back. Might take a minute. Richard did go on a bit. As can I, actually. The setup is this. Middle was regarded by the Royalists as their territory, and a trooper called Cornet Collins and his fellows were based at the nearby Shrowardin Castle, and one day they needed to get Collins's horse shod, so they rode into Middle to Alan Challoner's smithy. They chose a bad time. Seven roundheads appeared to be in the village, searching for a deserter, so in front of the village's horrified eyes, Alan's smithy became the scene of a shootout. Collins jumped on his horse and made a dash for it, but just when it seemed he'd escaped, he was hit by a shot, and he toppled off the horse into the village pond. The roundheads scarpered. Collins's blood was spreading in the pool, so the villagers pulled him out and carried him to Alan's house and laid him on the floor. He begged for a feather mattress because he was in horrible pain from the musket ball. Mrs Challoner was in charge now, and she rather bitterly replied that there was no feather mattress because Collins himself had come by the previous day on a plundering mission, and out of pure spite, just because he could, he'd thrown the feather mattress into the pond. Now there's something. Providential? Divine justice? Irony? Still, they dragged it out of the pond nonetheless, wet and dripping, and moved Collins onto it and summoned the local minister. The young Richard Goff happened to be with the minister, and so he went along to have a good stare. I went with him, and saw the cornet lying on the bed and much blood running along the floor. Cornet Collins spent a night, no doubt, of pain and agony. The next day, the villagers made up a party, took him to the garrison, where he died the next day. Such was the fabric of life in frontier lands. Obviously, it varied a lot as to where you were, but it would be a lucky family that wasn't touched in some way by the presence of a kind of brutish, casual violence of a type from which England had been free for so long. Now then, shall we have a final reckoning? 
It was Carlton who made us realise that the civil wars may have been a country mile from the brutality of the Thirty Years' War, but they weren't pretty. It is the constant background violence which costs most lives rather than those big set pieces. In a sample of 126 Catholic families, 37% died in big-ticket battles, 18% in tiddler battles, but 45% died in random skirmishes and violence along the way. Putting everything together, Carlton came up with these figures for the three kingdoms. Ready to receive incoming stats? In England, he calculates that 190,000 people died. That is 3.7% of England's population of 5 million. So the headline is that a higher percentage of the population died than in the First World War, which puts it in perspective. In Scotland, it's even higher, mainly affected by Montrose's rebellion in 1645 and his sack of Aberdeen and the War of 1650. So the headline figure is 60,000, which seems much less, but Scotland was the smallest of the three kingdoms, and so that is 6% of her population. Which brings us to Ireland, where Carlton starts doubling his apologies for the estimate because the record's so much harder, but... From the 1641 revolt to the Restoration through constant fighting and scorched earth policies from rebels and government, Carlton goes for 618,000 dead, which is a massive 41% of Ireland's 1.5 million population. By contrast, the Irish historian Podrig Lenehan comes in with the lowest figure at a still hideous £300,000, 20% of the population. That's probably a range, 20 to 40%, 300 to 620,000. Overall then, sticking with Carlton's numbers, over 11% of the population of the Three Kingdoms died in the civil wars. Maybe it was a different order of magnitude to the Thirty Years' War with its five millions dead, but Bowl of Cherries, or gentlemen engagement before Tiffin, it was neither. Charles Carlton has been our guide on the soldier's life and the impact of the civil wars on ordinary folk over the last two decades, a book written in 1992 which remains definitive. He has a letter from Elizabeth Moore to her list, to her sister in June 1644, and it tells the story of a lady in Hertfordshire talking about the ins and outs of holding her family together in very hard times. It is a good letter, nothing pyrotechnic, nothing to change the world, doesn't announce a new constitution or reject tyranny or whatever, but if you keep listening after I wish you good luck and all that, you will hear it. It's now but an extra minute of your time. But that is it for me for Christmas. I'll be back in 2024. It's been an interesting year. I have done 39 episodes, including seven at a gallops, 26 hours worth of podcasts, and the most episodes I've done since 216. And back then I wasn't shedcasting. So look, I am back, finally, back in black. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas with your families, and I've enjoyed your company this year no end. Next year, in the current run, we'll still be at best in the protectorate, but maybe I'll make time go faster. Who can see? But you know, we've got such good stuff coming up. We'll have some real radicalism as England tries to grapple with republicanism. There are radicals all over the place in the levellers and the diggers and the ideas and the struggle to find paradise once more. Such a great story. Anyway, all I'm saying is thank you for your company. Have a tremendous hooli over Christmas. Let the ends of your pineapple be of the smoothest possible patina. And I will see you on the other side.
Here's that letter then. Elizabeth Moore was meeting that most difficult of challenges, bringing up a family in the 17th century and in the hot spot of the 17th century to boot. Like so many at the time, she was an avid letter writer, if somewhat unstructured, and she writes here to her sister about ordinary things in extraordinary times. 2nd of June, 1644. Good sister, I had written to you before this time, but that I have an extreme sore eye, and it is not very perfect. Little Will had been much set back with the breaching of his teeth. He grows very much in length, though not in breadth. We ask for your company here many times. Here are great fears at this time, for it is reported that the enemy is at Bedford, and that they have plundered Hatch in Hertfordshire. The country are all in arms. Beside eight horse which are sent in, we hear that they drive back, but we cannot know for any certainty. There is no place free from distraction and trouble, I pray God, fit us all for what he pleased to impose on us, for these are bad times. I shall go to my sister Needham's next week, but I cannot resolve by reason of this ill news. My uncle in Lincolnshire is all ill done by cavaliers. They have taken all his writing and books. Heavencourt hath been very sick. He is in Norfolk at my cousin's. Thus we see how uncertain the world is. I pray God, set an end to all these troubles, that we may have a happy putting upon again, for which I pray and remain your loving sister, Elizabeth Moore. 